Hello, and welcome to You Philosopher. So today I want to talk with you about Captain Marvel. And part of what we're going to be trying to address is which is better, Captain Marvel or Black Panther. Now, it's important to, to note that I actually think these are like radically different films in terms of um, what they're trying to do. And um, <clears throat> so it doesn't really make all that much sense to decide which is better. So really what I'm doing here is I'm going to kind of just kind of go with one criteria, which is the idea that, okay, both of these films seemingly address a key social issue, right? In the case of Black Panther, it's addressing the issue of the treatment of people of color. And in Captain Marvel, it's addressing the issue of the treatment of women. Now, one thing to note is, of course, that um, Black Panther um, specifically addresses the issue of race in a way that uh, Captain Marvel doesn't explicitly address it. The, in, the entire film, Black Panther, kind of revolves around the question of the treatment of people of color and whether or not they should actually, you know, basically rise up against the, the, the white community. Whereas uh, Captain Marvel really is more specifically oriented around this kind of coming of age, coming into one's own power kind of narrative. And whilst there are gestures towards, you know, issues of um, tensions between men and women and sexism, uh, it isn't specifically the plot point as it is in Black Panther. So there's a lot to say that Black Panther does really well in terms of... Uh, forwarding the, um, the advocacy for the black community. And so it might kind of immediately just kind of go to Black Panther. Okay, black, black Panther's trying to address the issue. It specifically does address the issue. It gives possible solutions. It tries to work out which of those solutions are better. And in the end, it, it aims with the solution of less violence, more sharing of information, um, kind of an open-armed approach, whereas Captain Marvel doesn't really address the treatment of women in any specific way. So isn't, isn't it already just done? If that's the criterion that you want to use, Nick, um, isn't it done, right? Uh, Black Panther does a better job. <clears throat> but what I want to argue is that maybe not in the following way. If the criterion is specifically addresses the mistreatment of a particular group, and moreover, which film in so doing does more to liberate or provide voice for, to unshackle an oppressed group, I'm going to argue that Captain Marvel does a better job for it. And so here's why. So... Captain Marvel does not specifically talk about sexism. It's not addressing, you know, uh, say a group of women that's trying to figure out whether or not they should um, somehow overcome the, their mistreatment by men, it, it, which would be the anal like the kind of direct analogy to Black Panther. Instead, it's about Carol Danvers, who is trying to come into her own and find her own power, so on and so forth. Now, so with all of that being said, what does Captain Marvel really do particularly well then? Well, from my perspective, it's really a very large metaphor. Like the whole film 
revolves around a specific metaphor. And that metaphor is specifically the, the issue of women needing men, women being held back by men, and women needing to provide men with um, ego boosts. And, well, what is that overarching metaphor? Well, if you look at the film, it's really fascinating because those of us who are Captain Marvel fans, you know, or if we knew something about Captain Marvel beforehand, spend a good deal of the film kind of wondering why is she so underpowered, right? So Captain Marvel is generally considered one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe, if not the most powerful character in the Marvel Universe. So why is it that she basically just has, you know, some greater strength, the ability to shoot stuff from her fists? Like, why does she need, like, this kind of training in the first place? So we have a character that's supposed to be up there with Thanos instead, you know, getting, you know, beaten up and punched around um, in, in the way that maybe any kind of moderate superhero would be. And she certainly doesn't have the ability to fly and so on and so forth. So these things that we know that Captain Marvel is supposed to be able to do, she doesn't seem to, to be able to do. So we already have this basic idea that the film addresses the issue of someone who is underpowered who then becomes very, very powerful. And why? Well, she's specifically being held back, right? She's restrained. She doesn't know that she's being restrained. But those who are claiming to help her are in fact holding her back and then telling her it's because of her own best interest. Okay, so what do I want to say about that? To, to make my argument that this is, a, this is a metaphor for the treatment of women, because, you know, I, you might kind of go like, Really, Nick? I mean, that, that could be for like any group that's kind of held back. Okay, sure, sure. Um, but I want to point out the fact that <clears throat> the idea that women should be held under control is a very, very old one that goes farther back than, say, the idea of, of, of controlling people of color, like m much farther back than slavery. It goes arguably all the way back to the, to the start of the idea of private property. So... Um, uh, you see some historians talk about this. Burton Russell talks about this in, in his uh, History of Western Philosophy. He mentions it only briefly, but there's some good reason to believe that the, um, that the idea of like repressing and controlling women basically starts around the same time as the idea that we can own things. Now, okay, number one, that might just kind of make general sense in that, okay, um, as soon as we have the idea of owning stuff, well, what, what do we want to own? Okay, women. But I think it goes deeper than that, especially when you consider the fact that there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that before the advent of private property, which walks hand in hand with kind of city living, like in other words, people sitting down and engaging in agriculture, so on and so forth. Before that, you have Nomadic groups, right? People are just kind of wandering around, finding food, living, you know, pretty pleasant lives. And they're matriarchies. So women are in charge before you have agriculture, right? And then the shift, and we don't know entirely why the shift happens to agriculture. We think it might be drought, or, but we don't know. That people stop being nomadic and they sit down. And so they... They sit in one place and they start working the fields and to protect those fields, you know, they start building fences. And 
So the idea of pro private property seems to be born right around then. In other words, it seems kind of connected to the idea that I'm working on this stuff and I don't want to have to share it with others. And interestingly, at the same time, you see the idea of the ownership of women. And notice, by the way, also the, the discussion of women and men also takes on the idea of planting and land as well. So if you, you hear phraseology like planting his seed in her or plowing a woman, things like that. So the, the issue then becomes one kind of, of going, okay, well, um, you have people who are sitting down now kind of growing their own food, working on it, so on and so forth. Why would that walk hand in hand with the idea of oppressing women, abusing women, um, controlling women? And I think there's good reason to think that it has to do with the fact that women have this kind of power that men don't have. And I, I don't just mean like the ability to carry a child and give birth. That there's this kind of superpower that women have, which is to know that a child is theirs. And keep in mind until genetic testing, which is pretty recent, men really just kind of had to believe it. They didn't know for sure. And a woman knows that a child is theirs. There's really no question for her about it. And so before you have private property, there really isn't an issue of inheritance or like we're working really hard in the fields and, you know, who gets what isn't a big deal because you're kind of going out and finding everything. But once you have private property, well, now you have an issue of, okay, I really want the people to in who inherit my stuff and the people who are, who are benefiting from my work to actually be my own children. So women they don't really have this. So they can work in the fields and so on and so forth. And they know that the people who are benefiting from their work are their children. Men did not know this. And so there's some pretty good argument to say that right around then is when men start being really concerned about, well, is, is the woman who I think bearing my children not? And what do I do to ensure the fact that the children who are inheriting my stuff are in fact mine? And well, what's the best way to, to ensure that? Well, you lock them up, you keep them in harems, you know, you use chastity belts, whatever you want to do. And from that point on, you see this increasing narrative of, of control, of, of different experiments in control of women and women's bodies over the course of human history. Well, what evidence do I have to that? Well, very briefly, if you look at Greek literature, it's really fascinating. So if you look at a lot of older literature, you see that there's a lot of really powerful women in it and that women are doing more than say, just like Helen of Troy and starting wars because of their beauty, but they're like contenders in terms of being like there's goddesses that are as powerful or more powerful, smarter than some of the gods, right? So, you know, you have Athena and Artemis, um, Hera, you have all these really very, very powerful women. And you also have characters like Clytemnestra who kills her husband Agamemnon um, and denying him the ability to celebrate the spoils of the, the, the Trojan War, right? And it's Odysseus's wife who actually acknowledges him as king and thereby gives him back his kingdom. And if she doesn't do that, it would have gone to someone else. So the ancient Greeks, it, although very sexist, right? There's no argument there. Um, interestingly enough, really viewed women as a force of nature, something to be terrified of, particularly young unmarried women, that there was this power to them. And what you see then kind of from that point 
to, you know, into the Middle Ages and then into like the 1950s is this ever increasing idea that women aren't powerful. Oh, these poor dears, we need to help them out, so on and so forth. You know, it's the idea that they can't compete and, and that there, there's some argument to suggest that you hit this point where, okay, we're struggling keeping women physically under control, you know, for various reasons, social change, so on and so forth, we can't always lock them up. So what do we do to kind of make sure to ensure that their bodies remain <clears throat> under control? Well, you do things like tell them that they're not sexual or they're not interested in sex, that men are really the ones that are interested in sex. But it's interesting because if you look at the Middle Ages, people used to believe in, in, in the West People used to believe that women were far more sexual than men and that like the, that's why the women had to be locked up because they couldn't be trusted, you know, and that the men were the rational ones. Well, when you start hitting a point where you're no longer using chastity belts and you can't lock the women up, so on and so forth, and they're not just at home, um, then you start needing reasons to say, reasons that kind of help hold them down through means of just kind of getting in their heads. Like, oh, well, you know, they're not as strong, you know, and, and you get into their heads about their sexuality as well. And certainly that has happened, like, if you look at birth control, you know, for a long time, even into the 1970s, women weren't, like, young unmarried women weren't allowed to buy birth control for themselves. Um, you know, women would have to have their husband's um, approval to be able to use birth control. And so... What you kind of realize is that for a very, very long time, what even women who were married, they wouldn't have a say in, in whether or not they would get to have children, when and with whom, <laughs> right? And it, in fact, until pretty recently, like within the last 20 years or so, it, it was finally made illegal in the last state in the United States to rape your own wife. So... Anyways, the point being is, is we kind of have this long narrative of women's bodies kind of needing to be held under control and in, in connecting that more and more and more to things like their emotionality and what their sexuality is like. And you hear a lot of when we talk to, to when we talk about women and the treatment of women in our society, this idea that they're more emotional. That's just a really big one, right? That this idea like they're hysterical and and notice that the word hysterical itself is embedded literally with the prefix that connects it to to femaleness hence hysterectomies being um something that is connected to women as well but this idea that women are just overly emotional and that they that they can't control themselves in in these in in these emotional ways and this connects really nicely to Captain Marvel. So to be brief, let me just read a, a quote from it near the end of the film where Captain Marvel finally is no longer being restrained, right? She frees herself and notice that she doesn't need anyone else to free her. She does it herself. And so her antagonist says to her, a man says, I'm so proud of you. You've come a long way since I found you that day at the lake, but you can keep your emotions in check. Oh, excuse me. He says, but can you keep your emotions in check long enough to take me on? Or will it get the better of you as always? I always I always told you'll be ready the day you can knock me down as yourself. This is that moment. This is the that moment. Turn off the light show and prove, prove to me you can beat me. And then Captain Marvel just right, she doesn't turn off the light show, she uses her power to immediately just beat him. And it's done, right? And she says to him, um, I have nothing to prove to you. 
And that's what made me really think, okay, so this is an absolutely brilliant metaphor for um, the idea that women have been told that they need to keep themselves in check and that we're so proud of them when they do, oh, you know, honey, it's so good for you, you know, not crying in that movie, so on and so forth, you know, that they, you know, they, they try, but they really can't. And, but when they do, we get to be proud of them, right? Like, like somehow we've provided it with them. And notice that he seems to kind of need her to be like, to play on his level. And so what's really great about it is if the metaphor is taken to mean what I'm suggesting to mean, that, that women have, you know, been told to be restrained in lots of ways, you know, um, and it, because they're just too emotional and, and that they have to hold themselves back, um, that that their bodies need to be held under control, that their sexuality needs to be under control. And so you have here then a character who frees herself and in so doing is so powerful that um, it's beyond what her male antagonist can even come close to, which I think is part of this kind of social terror that men have that goes all the way back to this private uh, property issue of like, if we don't control them, how do we know who is inheriting our property. And this, you know, this Greek idea of the terror that unmarried women might be able to cause, the destruction that they might be able to do with their unbridled sexuality. And so why do I think that that makes it maybe even more powerful than Black Panther? Well, Black Panther, a very, very powerful film. I think one, one metaphor for Black Panther can be, well, you have two characters. You have Killmonger and you have Black Panther himself, right? T'Challa. And Killmonger's the one who's advocating violence for the freeing, freeing of his people, for the freedom of his people. And T'Challa, who is advocating um, uh, more peaceful means for the freedom of his people and for the Black community as a whole. And... In the end, notice which one wins out, the more peaceful one. And, and I think the metaphor there can easily be something like Malcolm X and MLK, right? And notice that in our society, we don't really talk about Malcolm X that much. Like when you learn, when you have students reading, you know, they learn a lot about Dr. King. They don't learn as much about Malcolm X. And we really emphasize what Malcolm X, excuse me, what, what uh, Dr. King did and why people should be like Dr. King. Unless they're white, <laughs> In other words, um, we're, we're really big fans of the fact that we, the United States, fought against Britain, right? We're willing, we, you know, when, when it's the United States fighting against Britain for its own freedom, we're all about it. But when it's um, Malcolm X saying, listen, if, if you're going to continue treating like this in really, really repressive and awful ways, we will use violence. Well, we're like, no, that's not okay. You need to go Dr. King's way. And Interestingly, there's a lot to be said for the civil rights movement really may not have been as nearly as effective had it only been Dr. King. Not to take anything away from him, but Malcolm X did a lot of really important work too that we really kind of minimize, I think, in part to kind of promote the idea of like internal social cohesiveness and, and to kind of keep peace. And don't get me wrong, I'm not an advocate for violence really under any circumstance. But there is something to be said for, it's really, really hard to free oneself sometimes without it. And so if the metaphor there holds, if what I'm saying kind of makes sense, then Black Panther is a film that kind of advocates against doing whatever is necessary 
to achieve freedom and equality. It kind of says, let's, let's pull our punches a little bit, right? Whereas Captain Marvel says, no. In fact, she's literally, after be beating her antagonist, says, and now I'm going to go after the people in charge. And I'm going to do whatever's necessary. I'm not going to hold myself back. I'm not going to continue to pull punches. I'm going to use whatever, and forgive me for this, violence is necessary to achieve that end. Now, again, not advocating violence, but I will say that if these metaphors seem like sensible metaphors in terms of like I'm making connections that, that make sense, then the, the film Captain Marvel is basically suggesting that women shouldn't have to hold themselves back. And there is a particular good reason for that, in addition to like freeing oneself, liberating oneself from oppression. It's also because notice that women have been told um, not just that they need to hold themselves back, but they kind of need to make men feel better about themselves. There's this long history of like, well, I don't want to tell my husband that I'm making more money than him, you know, like of women letting men win at sporting events and stuff like that. To the point now where many, many men with whom I speak really, really believe that no woman could beat them at a sport. Um, especially if it's a sport that they're good at. And it doesn't matter how good the woman at it is at it. She could be the best woman in the world at it. They'll be like, yeah, but she's a woman. And so despite the fact that there's lots of, of, of sports that use lots of different kind of body strengths, so on and so forth, I know many men who will just simply advocate like, not only is the best man in the world at sports always going to be better than the best woman in the world, but I, a man who's kind of average at sports by default are going to be is going to be better than the best woman. So there's this long history of like women kind of like, okay, well, let me like help you feel better about it. What can I do to make you feel better about you? And so you, you see that in like, I think that even bears itself out in what I think of as like the Fred Flintstone complex, where if you look at our, our, our sitcoms over and over and over again, you have these really attractive, really competent women who are dating these guys who are kind of frumpy and dumb. And it, it, and it's bad for men too, right? Because it, it makes men look really stupid, right? But it also kind of suggests like, well, these, these women, you know, they should kind of be trying with these guys who aren't trying that hard. And, you know, the, the women are kind of like holding back. Whereas Carol Danvers doesn't, right? Captain Marvel says, you know what? You're not good enough to fight me on my level. So I don't have to bring myself down to your level. If you can't play, if you can't play on my level, that's your problem. And, and I think there's a nice connection with that to sport because a lot of people say, look, what are you talking about, Nick? Like, look at something like sport. Women can't compete in there. So like, what are you talking about? Well, we don't even let them try. And I think what if maybe part of that's like, we're like, well, it's to protect them. Maybe they don't need our protecting. Maybe if we respected them as adults, we would say, listen, this is really dangerous, right? You, you, you know, biology suggests you, you might get concussions more easily. And they say, listen, I'm an adult, right? I live in the United States of America. If I want to try it, I could try it. That's what we say to men, right? That's what a lot of people say about men in football, for instance. Listen, well, that's their choice. The NFL doesn't need to feel bad, so on and so forth. Well, then why are we protecting women from at least really like being able to give it their best effort in the vast majority of sports, which still remain segregated, not by race, but by sex. We don't even let the women try out. Well, what if part of that is, is to is is to prevent men from having to feel bad when they lose a spot to women. This danger of like, oh, you got beaten by a girl, which is something that is still something that like boys worry about today, as opposed to like, epic, you got beaten by a girl. Like the, the comedy of it is, is 
if Captain Marvel beat me up, I would not be ashamed, right? If, if, a, if a female athlete beat me up or beat me at a sport, I would not be ashamed, right? If a female mathematician does better at math, I, like, I'm not like, oh, I got beaten by a girl, like epic, like, like if I was good enough to even go toe to toe with Captain Marvel and lose, and let's be honest, I'm not even close to that. That's something to be proud of, right? It's like getting in the in in the ring with a world-class fighter. So the fact that she's not willing to hold back should be something to be impressed by and be proud of. And so I do think that the film, although it doesn't specifically state it, I don't think it has to. It is kind of gesturing to women, look, do what whatever you have to to free yourself. And you do not have to play by their rules. You do not have to uh, hold yourself back so that people don't have to feel bad about themselves. You don't have to be a terrible person either. But if you are being told that it's you that needs to be kept under control and your emotions that need to be held back, maybe they're just the ones who are afraid of how powerful you really are. So anyways, um, it's been a pleasure getting to talk with you today. I always love to hear your thoughts, questions, disagreements. So um, I hope to hear from you on the comment section. So with that, I hope you have a wonderful week.